Back in the mid-1990s, when the Education Department first started its direct loan program for college students, that program was expected to turn a profit for the Treasury. The initial estimates, $114 billion over the next quarter century. Well, now that we're here, that turns out to have been a little bit off, like way off. The Government Accountability Office says the program has actually cost the government $197 billion. The reasons for that $300 billion-plus miscalculation, well, they're complex. To help sort them out, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke to the GAO's Director of Education, Workforce, and Income Security Issues, Melissa Emery Aris. Melissa, thanks for doing this. And, and I think the way I want to kind of set the stage before we dig deeper into your findings is, is who exactly would this be a surprise to? I assume education has been re-estimating these figures every single year and has had a good sense of where things stand in any given year. But has this been tracked by Congress or publicly? Who's, who's going to be surprised by these numbers? That's a great question, Jared. I think this is going to be a surprise to a lot of folks in the student loan world. Up to a few years ago, many people thought that the student loan portfolio was going to make money for the federal government. So I think this report showing that the student loan portfolio is now expected to cost the government close to $200 billion is going to be a surprise to them. Can you talk a little bit about why the estimating process for the costs or revenues from these loans is so difficult to begin with? And I think it's gotten more difficult over time, right? It's a very challenging process, and it is very hard to do. One of the issues is that the Department of Education needs to estimate the cost of loans before it even makes those loans. So it has to estimate in advance how many people are going to borrow, how much they're going to borrow, and also what the incomes of those borrowers will be. And that's very difficult to predict. And when you at GAO did your deep dive into the budget data here, what did you find were the main drivers behind the the huge difference in the original 25-year cost estimate and what the current estimate is? We found two factors were driving the change in costs. One is what we call programmatic factors. So these are changes in the program, the student loan program. So any new laws affecting the program, uh, any new administrative actions affecting the program, uh, that would affect the cost. In that case, uh, for example, we have the student loan payment pause, which is currently expected to expire at the end of the month. And we found that the cost for that alone through April of this year was about $100 billion. So that was a significant cost uh, that was driven by the pandemic. Um, In addition, we also found changes in costs due to improvements in data. As you mentioned, the Department of Education re-estimates the cost of the student loan program on a yearly basis. And with those re-estimates, it develops new data and new assumptions. With better data and better assumptions about the student loan portfolio, it is able to have better estimates of the cost. And those changes in the assumptions and data have also increased the cost of the portfolio. With just respect to the recent COVID payment pause, once we're kind of past that phase, does that $100 billion in change start to get reset and roll back into the program once, once folks are making payments again? Is that just kind of a temporary blip? So the, the cost of the student loan program would be re-estimated on a yearly basis, and we can see what happens in the years to come depending on 
what the status of the pause is and what the status of the other conditions is. Are there any actual impacts to the loan program resulting from this, I guess, misestimate, for, for lack of a better term? Is it just add to the budget deficit or does it impact the program's ability to generate new loans or, or have any other consequences? I think this is more of a matter of people understanding what the actual cost is so that they can factor that in in policy decisions. And Melissa, just getting back to the complexity of making these estimates um, in, in the first place, I think one factor you found is is income-driven repayments, which can change over time. Can you unpack that a little bit for us and, and why that was such an issue here? Happy to. Thank you for the question, Jared. Income-driven repayment is when people make their repayments based on their income and family size. And so the amount that they pay each month will vary depending on their current income and their family size. At this point in time, the number of uh, loans in income-driven repayment is about half of the student loan portfolio. It wasn't always like that. The student loan portfolio has changed over time, but now about half of it has loans that are in these income-driven repayment plans. And what that means in terms of the cost is that the Department of Education now needs to estimate borrowers' incomes over an extended period of time in order to estimate how much they will pay on their, on their loan. And so what that means is that the department needs to estimate the cost of student loans before it even makes loans, and then it needs to estimate the incomes and family sizes of those borrowers in decades to come, which is a very challenging task. Yeah. Did, did you get into looking to some of the reasons why more of the program has gone into income-driven repayments? Is it related at all to the increase in cost of college in the first place? Income-driven repayment can help lower the monthly cost of uh, borrowers, which can make it more affordable for many people. In addition, people who work for the federal government or nonprofits can benefit from income-driven repayment when connected with public service loan forgiveness. So people who participate in income-driven repayment plans can pay less each month and then after a period of 10 years of public service have their balances completely forgiven. I'm glad you brought up that program because if I'm not mistaken, that's another one of these examples where that loan forgiveness program did not even exist back when the back when the federal student loan program was created, so it would have been impossible to estimate the costs of that. Correct. So that is one of the programmatic changes that happened where public service loan forgiveness came into being, and there have been changes even within the public service loan forgiveness program. There is a temporary expanded public service loan forgiveness program. There is a public service loan forgiveness waiver And all of that is newer and was not in existence when some of these loans were originally made. And what other kinds of economic factors come into play to to change the cost of the program over these 25 years? Income and inflation can both affect costs. We did some modeling within our report and found that if there is higher inflation, it could result in increased costs to the government in the student loan portfolio. Similarly, we found that if uh, income growth is slower, if people earn less, 
it could also drive up the costs of the student loan portfolio. What this, what this tells us is that there are multiple factors that come into play in estimating the cost of student loans, and it is very difficult to predict the future on all of these fronts before any loans are made. And, and I think just one example of that, if I understood the report correctly, is that education needs to set the interest rates for the loans it's about to give before the school year even starts, but it doesn't know how what its borrowing costs from Treasury are going to be until much, much later. And those costs may have increased during that interval and, and, and often did, I think, right? That's correct. So borrower interest rates, what the borrower pays is set in advance, yet the cost to the Department of Education, the cost to the government, is not set until up to 18 months later. So there's a up to a year and a half difference between the timing of the interest rate for the borrower and the timing of the interest rate for the government. And in that time, interest rates can change. And if costs go up, it can increase the cost to the federal government. Melissa Emery Aris is Director of Education, Workforce and Income Security Issues at the Government Accountability Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly whenever I was ten years old. And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, 
it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do admit it, especially in the younger ages really can have a lifelong impact how would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time i would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that i care um I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. 
It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.